Well, so we have uh, <clears throat> we have Abraham Kuyper, and last we left him in the year, uh, really kind of 1901, barely, he had just been elected uh, prime minister of the Netherlands. And so obviously he's a, he is, as I put forth in our opening lesson, a successful, really one of the most, if not the most successful Christian uh, politician, probably the most successful uh, Presbyterian politician, unless you maybe count Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he could be another option in the last 150 years um, in terms of uh, worldly position and power and that sort of thing and influence. Um, but today I, I want to discuss Kuiper as a politician. You know, we have an election coming up in a little while. You may have heard of it. You may be thinking about it. Um, I'm sure you are. Uh, and I'm not here to tell you, you know, uh, details on public policy today, but I am here to discuss what Kuiper's view is. Well, Kuiper's view, first, we'll look at his political theory. And we'll get into his career and his last 20 years of life and we'll look at what he says first about politics itself, political um, science. You know, uh, this is about as political uh, as uh, we can get. Uh, but um, he 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 says first of all, this is from his lecture in the year 1898. Uh, he he argues that Calvinism Calvinism does not have primarily a dominating salvific principle. He says, look. The Lutherans, it's October 30th, 31st today, we come to celebrate the Reformation today, and we really focus in on that great recovery of the gospel by Martin Luther, that great recovery of justification by faith alone. But Kuiper says, no, actually, if you look at Calvinism, what does Calvinism equal? What does it mean to be a Calvinist? And he says it equals God over all, God's sovereign. God's sovereign over all things. That's what he says it is. He says it's not uh, simply a narrow get-saved principle. It's not simply justification by faith. He calls it a cosmological principle, the sovereignty of the triune God in all its spheres and kingdoms over the whole world, visible and invisible. Um, so that's his kind of operating principle that God, Christ, is king over all things. Now, when it comes to politics, he says particularly Calvinism has a primordial truth. He has a primordial truth. Like many in his day, he, he, he looks to universal truths, and he gives this one universal truth about Calvinism. Let me quote it to you here. He says, All true conception of the state and authority, and on the other hand, all true conception of people's rights to defend liberty, depends on what Calvinism has placed in the foreground as the primordial truth, here it is, that God has instituted the magistrates by reason of sin. So uh, to put it simply, uh, we have governors or we have leaders in politics because of sin. That is what he puts forth as the basic primordial essential principle of politics that the state is a post-fall institution. I think I mentioned this last time, but he would argue that the government is post-after the fall. That family, that, uh, that our human bonds are come before the fall. But rather that God gives the state because of our sin. God gives a state because of our sin. And he, he says, 
Why is this? Because God made the nations, right? God created all nations. They exist under Him. They exist for Him. God has kindly given government to protect His handiwork, to protect you, to protect us. He's given government, He's given the states, given politics to protect you from sin. Now, he argues that this, this leads to three things. Three basic principles. He says, look, here is the political faith of a Calvinist. Three things. First, God only, I'll put them here, only God has sovereign rights. Only God has sovereign rights. No creature in the death of the nations. God alone maintains nations. He created nations. He rules them by His ordinances. Second, sin breaks down what Kuiper refers to as direct government. Breaks down direct government of God. In the garden, Adam and Eve had God. They had a direct government. They had a, you will, a wink with God. They, they could form their own institutions. Uh, they would not need to have uh, a state. They would not need to have a kind of mediating institution between the people and God because the one human race was in direct communion with God. The one human race was able to be with God perfectly and to live together. And ideally, if they multiply, let's hypothetically say here, I think we can speculate within the bounds of Scripture, that if the human race of Adam and Eve had had kids and filled the earth, there would have been no need for a state, Kuiper would argue. Uh, but instead, sin has broken down. And therefore, as a mechanical remedy, because of sin... We now have authority given to what he calls magistrates, what I'll just call governors, because nobody uses the word magistrates anymore. You could not, don't think of just the governor of Georgia, but it's just politicians in general, leaders, you might say. And then he says, this is the final point in his kind of view of, of Calvinism as a political force. Man never, humans never possess power over other humans unless. God gives them authority to do so in whatever form. Uh, this is a side note. Kuiper is not interested in a, a certain type of political government. He says, look, today we have democracy. We, today we have republics. That, that looks nice or that's great. But, but he, he says, look, it doesn't matter if you have a king. It doesn't matter if you have an oligarchy. It doesn't matter if you have the aristocrats. It doesn't matter if you have direct democracy. It doesn't matter if you have a republic. As long as you understand that whatever government, whatever form is given, is given by God. Whatever form is given is, 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 is given by God. And so his third principle is that uh, we have no power over other humans except from God. Power comes from God. Authority comes ultimately from God. So those are his, his three kind of rules. Only God has sovereign rights. Sin breaks down the direct government of God in the, in the garden. Therefore, in the fall, we need a state. But third, 
whatever form the authority comes in, man never has power over his fellow man except from the authority given by God. Now, he, he, will, rule out, he, he will rule out one type of political form, one type of state. He will rule out a theocracy. He says there, there should be no theocracy because a theocracy was only found in Israel. He says in Israel, and alone in Israel, God intervened immediately. God intervened in that nation, in that holy nation. And therefore, our earthly nations, composed as they are, mixed of Christians and non-Christians, are not to be uh, theocracies. You can't, you can't force that uh, upon others. So you have these three rules. You have his idea, his, his view of um, what form. He's not really interested in the form. He has his preferences, of course. But his other position is, his other, uh, kind of a, another note to, to, to say here, is that the governor, the magistrate, is an instrument of common grace. An instrument given by God to shield us from evil, to thwart license, as he puts it. But more than that, now this is striking, more than that, he says the governor is given, I'll just quote, I suppose I should quote him here. The magistrate, the governor, the politician. Politicians, this may strike you. I don't know if we ever say this about our politicians today. Politicians are instituted by God as his servant in order that he may preserve the glorious work of God, the creation of humanity from total destruction. To put it simply, uh, politicians are given to help humans to help humans avoid the ravages of sin insofar as possible. I think it's a very critical note. Notice he does not say that a politician must be a Christian. He understands, obviously, he's in a political environment where you have a whole bunch of people. But he says the ones that are elected, the ones that are appointed, the king, if they're not elected, if they're not appointed, they just hereditarily you know, rule. He says whoever they are, whatever they are, they are given by God to preserve the creation of humanity, to preserve humanity from total destruction. So, that's his kind of political theory. Um, he will get, he, he, he loves to attack, rather, let me put it this way. He sees two great enemies against this. This, this biblical idea, as he puts it. Um, before I get to the two opponents, any questions so far on kind of his positive outline, his theory of Calvinism and the government? Post-fall, for human good, for the common good. No human can have power over other, other humans except authority given from God. Yes, sir. So your question is about where does how does Kuiper distinguish between mere common grace versus kind of positive good? Mm-hmm. Agree on, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> 
Yeah, so he will argue, and I suppose I could, I'm not sure that I can give a complete answer to that question. Your argument is basically how you distinguish between um, mere common grace and kind of more specialized religious or theological language. Is that a fair point to make? So he, he would say the state, uh, the primary role of the state is not to, this gets to his, the question of church and state, um, and, and he says, <clears throat> um, I'll just quote him on this, the sovereignty of the state and the sovereignty of the church exist side by side, and they mutually limit each other. He, he's very big on separation of church and state in this way. His argument would be that, um, <clears throat> if I understand him rightly, now I'm not, you know, I'm not claiming to be an expert here, but I, I think I have him fair on this. He will argue for something um, called pillarization. Somewhere in my notes, I have the Dutch word, but I, I don't have it to hand right here. Um, and pillarization basically means that in Dutch society, you know, you have you have a building, right? The whole if you imagine the Dutch government, Dutch society, the whole the big building, an old kind of classical building. You have pillars, and, and he he would argue that you know, uh, excuse my bad drawing here, right? Just to take for example a few pillars. He would argue that you know you have you have the um, the the reformed the the reform pillar you have the catholic pillar you have the jewish pillar and you know just throw in another one you have the liberal that is kind of the 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 humanist uh, pillar so to speak and kuiper would say look each of these pillars has their own you know school each of these pillars has their own newspaper their own media each of these pillars has their own uh unions and basically, from the day you're born to the day you die, you exist in that pillar, that bubble. So, I mean, we might call it a bubble today. You, you go to the, you know, you're born in the Presbyterian hospital, the Reformed hospital. You go um, to the Presbyterian church, the Reformed church. You uh, are educated in the Reformed school. Uh, he would say university, everybody should go to, you know, everybody should come together for university. He had a different idea about university. You should join a Reformed business. And then uh, you can die in, uh, in a reformed hospice center. Um, I bring that up because if I'm not mistaken, <clears throat> Kuiper would argue that the kind of technical, theological, or religious goods that you're talking about are not the property, are, are not to be given by the state, but by these pillars. And to, I'm gonna, just to cut to the principle I'm going to get to at the very end, by the last 20 years of his life, Kuiper will argue, and this is a popular view today even, that um, the goal of the reform pillar, which he would view as the right pillar, the best pillar, the goal of the reform pillar is not to kind of wall itself off, but the goal of the reform pillar is to so outshine others to show the glory of God and that Christians basically, that reform Christians can do the best. His argument is that as Christians, we should outshine others. We have to work twice as hard. He would say this, he was asked, this may not be answering all your questions, Elijah, but I'm getting more stuff in from later, so I'll, I'll go on if that's all right. Um, he was asked in Parliament when he was Prime Minister, <clears throat> what does a Calvinist chemist look like? You know, he, he, he was asked this question. Uh, you're all about education. One of his big bills that we'll, we'll come to was on education. The, the, one, the one huge success he had as a politician, as Prime Minister, from 01 to 05, was getting an education bill passed. He was asked this, 
what do the Calvinist chemists look like? And he says this. First, he, he quoted long citations of the philosopher Immanuel Kant. He talked about science within a framework of principles. And his, but his basic point is that you have the facts of, of an experiment, but you have to interpret the facts. You have, uh, you have principles that allow you to interpret the facts. He looked at evolutionary biology. He looked at Darwin and said, look, you have the facts on the ground, and yet a Darwinist, an evolutionary biologist, interprets the facts in X way. You have your interpretation of the facts. Um, his point, therefore, is that every university operates within the controls of one worldview or another. And he says this. Um, he says that the free university is not a drill school graduating dressed up parrots, but that uh, the university that he sponsors had to be twice as good as the competition to earn half the respect. Uh, so to, to sum it all up, um, <clears throat> he argues um, that When it comes to having a Christian worldview, a Calvinist worldview, that should not stifle the good of free investigation, but allow it to proceed. And his argument would be that, a, even as we discussed last time, a, a reformed view, a reformed pillar, a reformed worldview uh, should prove the superiority of Christianity and a reformed version in particular over all other things by giving those positive goods to a community. And so you'd see as positive goods are given uh, by the reform unions, we'll see Kuiper's a huge fan of, of trade unions, which may surprise some of us. Um, but as those, as you have Christian families make Christian kids, and, and as you have Christian workers, as you have the Christian institutions, you'll see the superiority of them over the non, uh, over the other variants, other pillars, if you will. But there's a theory. That may not answer your question entirely, but does that satisfy some of the things? All right. Um, any other, uh, I suppose we probably should move on. Any other questions before we hit on uh, um, the, the opponents? So Kuiper would argue that there are two major opponents that he sees against, uh, against this Calvinist view of, um, of government. He says, first, there's a view that gives the people authority over God and everyone else. His first opponent here is the mob, or what you might call popular sovereignty. He looks at the French Revolution. You recall he hates the French Revolution. And he says, the French Revolution is not like the English glorious revolution. It's not like the American revolution. It's not like the Dutch golden age because all of those revolutions were undertaken with praying lips, in his phrase. The French revolution ignores God, opposes God, refuses to recognize a deeper ground of political life than that which is found in nature. So he looks to French, the French revolution, and he says, this is uh, what happens when you give people power or when people take power over other people apart from God. He's not a fan. Um, second, the second enemy is uh, what we might call today totalitarianism. 
what, what others might call kind of a, a statism, a state sovereignty. He uses the example in his day of Imperial Germany under the Kaiser. And in Imperial Germany, the, the, the political belief was that the state was kind of a, a mystical incarnation of the will of the Kaiser or the will of the German people. Very similar to what you find in Nazi Germany. Hitler would take this kind of to the nth degree. Um, a kind of idealism. The state is a mysterious being, and uh, again, there's no real place for God. Right? The state becomes uh, totally dominant. He would see these, these two as the, uh, as, as the, great, the great issue. Um, now, <clears throat> I mentioned last time, we've already talked a little bit about it, that um, Kuiper had a view of the world as divided into different spheres. And he would have a sphere for the state. This is a circle, not a sphere. You can imagine it as a 3D thing if you want to. Uh, you know, he would have the state, he would have the family, he would have, you know, business, the arts, and all these spheres. Uh, you were in each of them to some degree or another. You, you, you're in the arts because you read books, you watch movies, you do this. You're, you're involved in some way to perform. You're in business, you're in the state, you're in, uh, you're in the church. Now, he would say that the church, uh, that the state, rather, has a particular right to interfere in other spheres because of sin. He says the state has three rights and duties to interfere. First, wherever different spheres clash, to compel mutual regard for each's boundary lines. In other words, you know, where uh, the church rubs up against business or where the arts rub up against education, uh, the state should regulate and say, hold on now. We need to each, everybody needs to have their own little bit. You know, the artists need to have their, their little bit, the university needs to have their little bit. Uh, second, to defend the weak against the abusive power of the rest. So when it comes to businesses, he would, as I mentioned before, be a strong proponent of unions. He would identify that the, the working class, what we call today a kind of a living wage, was uh, a Christian responsibility and duty to be given to, to people, to protect the weak and individuals from the abusive power of those in charge. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous Welsh pastor, had, had similar similar belief. It was, it's a common kind of Christian democratic uh, impulse, at least in Europe. Third, the state can coerce people to bear personal and financial burdens for maintaining natural unity. They can tax you, in other words. The state has the right to tax you um, because there is a good to be had from keeping the state together. You don't want the French Revolution to break out. So, uh, that's his political theory. I don't want to get way too much into this. Um, uh, the last thing I suppose I should say uh, on your question, Elijah, is uh, common grace that Kuiper would argue is present in society and in, in the world uh, does not exist only for the benefit of saving grace. To put it in our terms, we don't give people water so that five minutes later we can give them a tract. We don't just give people a bait-and-switch kind of view. That's not what Christians are to do. That's not what God has given common grace for. In fact, he will argue common grace has its own purpose. Its purpose is to give God glory. 
He would argue that through common grace, humanity builds culture up to greet Jesus Christ when he returns. He would argue, therefore, this is a, a, a monumental point, that we are not just here to kind of burn and just do what we want to and you know, take from the earth what we feel like and uh, just dominate and rule over it for our own good. Rather, uh, all humans are, meant, uh, are, are builders. We are like our God. We build things. We create things. We are meant to build things that give God glory. Um, yeah. So I think that's probably sufficient here on his theory. Let me get to his practice in reality, right? Because Kuiper, obviously, he has a theory, but uh, he also has what he does. And when he becomes prime minister, as you might expect, not everything is, uh, is nice and neat and easy. Um, any questions before I move on to that? We come to Kuiper. Uh, Kuiper was in Parliament, of course, from in the in the 1890s, in the 1900s. Um, he was in opposition as the head of the uh, ARP, the Anti-Revolutionary Party, and he was against the liberals. These liberals were the folks who uh, don't think of him a liberal today, but kind of a classical 19th-century liberal, very free market focused. You might call it a capitalist liberal, very focused on on uh, uh, secularism, humanism. Uh, those sorts of ideas, and yet doing good in the world, right? And so Kuiper said, hold on now, um, we, need to, we need to win the election, we need to fight against them. And so in order to become prime minister, he had to do a really dangerous thing for his base. His base didn't like it. His base is you know, the, Dutch, the Dutch farmer, the kind of uh, working class Dutch folks, uh, the folks who own some of the businesses, but not too many, most of them are liberals. Uh, and so he had to do something to get into power. What he does is he allies with Rome. He forms what his enemies called a monster alliance between the Reformed and the Catholics. And Kuiper says, however, what, the, what we share with uh, the Roman Catholics is more important for political purposes than our theological differences. You know, we come today on Reformation uh, Sunday. We're going to celebrate the difference that we have very clearly with the Roman Catholic Church. And yet, when it comes to politics, Kuiper has this pragmatic idea that um, Catholics and Protestants can agree that human nature is fallen and we have some need for divine help. Now, we disagree strongly over what that divine help looks like, but the secularists, the liberals, don't believe in any of that. They believe, even though they may, they may be personally devout, they only look to human capacities. And so he argues that there's a broad a broad party necessary. Um, this is what he said. He was accused of kind of making Christianity so weak and minimal that it was useless. He says, no, 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 no. Faith in politics works by a formula of a Christianity beneath differences in beliefs. What, do you, what does that mean? That means actually to get the real deep Christianity, you shouldn't be going to politics. You should be going to church. Where do you get the best Christianity? You get it by going to church. You get it from the powerful working of the church, right? If you want to think about at the pyramid, you start at the top with the church. Where do you have most of Christ? You get it, so to speak, in the church, and then it kind of trickles down into homes and hearts. And as it trickles down into homes and hearts, 
finally goes into society and it goes into politics. And so if you're looking to politics to be really powerfully reformed or uniquely uh, Protestant or whatever, you're misunderstanding the role of politics. Um, he used a kind of chemical analogy, right? You have the uh, you have kind of a, a burning off, and yet every time you burn off a little bit of the uh, the the uh, precipitate, the life of faith seeps down into the public life. Um, and this worked, right? In, in 1901, he he wins election. He, he he becomes prime minister. He's also the minister of um, home affairs, kind of domestic affairs. And so, what is what does he do? What is a uh, what does he do? Um, I could go into this for a while, but he, he has to face a, a couple of issues. Let me hit, 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 a, hit maybe a couple here. One, he has to face the issue of colonialism. The Dutch have been involved in a 30-year kind of, uh, very similar to kind of the U.S. and Afghanistan and Iraq. They've been involved at this point in a 30-year kind of guerrilla battle in uh, the East Indies. And uh, some of his folks, Kuyper's folks, wanted to sit, surge and send in more troops and just finish it off. And, and Kuyper uh, was a more, he was more reform-minded. He, he, he was more kind of uh, progressive on the issue. And, and he says, you know, um, I think it's better to actually promote good government. We need to have our Dutch uh, appointees not be so harsh on the, uh, the locals. In fact, he commissioned an investigation into the Indonesian lower classes. And how, how, uh, are they doing well or not? So contrary to kind of a um, popular depiction of Christian imperialist or colonialist that you have in the Victorian era, Kuiper definitely had a view that the Anglo-Dutch people were superior. And I'm not going to make him somebody, somebody who's not. Uh, he, he did hold that you know certain uh, ethnic groups were superior to other ethnic groups. We would say that that's wrong. But he wasn't just there to get all the money he could and suck it out. However, he did have to eventually bow the knee to his base, and he did send in a troop surge to Indonesia that finished the job, similar maybe in some ways to surges that we might know of in, 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 in our day. Um, but that's not his main, his main issue. His main issue um, was the, the question of education and of... Yeah, of, of education. Kuiper was a proponent here of affirmative action. Kuiper believed in affirmative action for Christians. He had complained a long time about a liberal monopoly on judges, mayors, school inspectors. And he thought to right the balance via affirmative action. Without lowering the quality, he, uh, as the prime minister, as the head of the home affairs, he instituted policies that increased the proportion of Calvinist and Roman Catholic appointees that would be equal to their share of the population. There's a lot of controversy today about quotas, about percentages. A lot of folks are arguing something similar today, but he, he made the point, this is an interesting point, he, made, he was particularly sensitive that officials fit the local religious landscape of their posting. In other words, if you're in a heavily Catholic area, need a Catholic person. You're in a heavily... Uh, Protestant area, you need a Protestant person. I'm not going to say that's good or bad, but just giving you the facts. Just giving you, telling you a little bit about what he did. Um, perhaps, as I mentioned before, perhaps it's the best thing that he did, or at least the, the thing that he looked to as uh, really vital. Um, 
he um, was his education bill. This is what he 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 said later was his uh, his most his his best achievement. Um, he pushed to increase uh, education not simply at a university level, but in terms of the trade schools. He believed that uh, the trade schools needed to be improved. That you should have more higher education, not just for the kind of academics, but for those who couldn't go into academics. Uh, he opened up schools uh, for women, or rather he included women in these schools. As a side note, let me give you a quote on that. He says, nothing so starkly proves the superiority of Christianity over every other religion as the elevation of women wrought by the gospel. So that was a really powerful quote. Nothing so strongly proves how Christianity is superior over others as its elevation of women in the gospel. Um, I thought that was very, very powerful. Um, but in any event, uh, he, he pushes this education policy that uh, seeks to involve all as, as, as he can. Um, let, me, let me see what else I want to point out here. Any questions before, uh, before we move on the time we have left to Kuiper after his prime ministership? Absolutely. I mean, that's what Kuiper, Kuiper had to learn that. You know, there was a huge, for all the support he had for unions, in 1903, there was a huge union strike, a huge railway strike, and you know he had to he had to kind of get tough on unions. He had to send in strike breakers, you know, just as the capitalist. It's uh, what happened here with with our corporations in, in America. Um, even though he had this theory, right? In practice, you, you got to handle the issues. Yeah, that's good, Jim. Um, so in 1905, he had a second election, second term attempt. The first term, his first election campaign had been all about kind of a, a positive note. You know, Christianity beneath the theology. You know, everybody get together, emphasizing our common grace. Second attempt, he goes the opposite note. He says, no, there's a contrast. There's a confrontation between Christians and modern people. The Christian and the modern life conception. There's an enormous antithesis. You recall Kuiper is the guy of common grace. He's the guy of the antithesis. Sharp difference between Christians and non-Christians. And the election campaign fails, in part because, well, he, he, he does negative campaigning. He says, no, we're Christians, we're different. And uh, that, that didn't work. Uh, the guy who opposed him, I give you a, a caricature of him, uh, of Kuiper, here on your handout. Uh, he had a whole book of cartoons published about him. This is one of them, uh, published in, 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 in that year by his enemies, um, and the slogan of the liberals was, throw him out. You know, you need those kind of punchy uh, campaigning slogans. Hey, it worked. Uh, nobody ever asked who the him was. They all knew, right? It was, it was, uh, it was, it was Kuiper. Um, now, after 1905, he has, having worked a lot, he has another nervous breakdown. Kuiper had three in his whole life. He was a workaholic. He wrote over 200 books. He had uh, bronchitis starting about this period. And so what does he do? He goes uh, to Switzerland for a recovery. And after he recovers a bit, he goes on the last great expedition of his life, about 1905 to 1907, he takes a trip to the Mediterranean. 
why do I mention that? Usually we don't care about people's vacations. Uh, this is a huge trip. It's, it's an important trip for Kuiper's mindset because he, he goes uh, up front, face-to-face with the modern world and the Islamic world. He goes to Egypt. He goes to Spain. He goes to uh, Vienna. He goes in the Orient Express. He goes to Turkey, the Ottoman Empire. He goes to Istanbul. And he, he begins to develop his last great thought, his last great book. And just to cut to the chase, uh, in, in 1907 and 08, he publishes this book, or he begins to write it. It's a book in Latin called Pro Reggae, meaning uh, for the king, not reggae the music, of course. For the king. Who's the king? Jesus, right? King Jesus. And in, in this Pro Reggae, he, um, he lays out how the modern world has changed. You know, Kuiper grew up in the 1860s and 70s, and by the time it's 1910, it's a different world for him. He's an older man. And yet, it's fascinating because what he describes is almost like our age. Let me, let me give you some, some things he looks at. He says, we have a new world, world order. We have a new world order that's defined by constant technology constant technological improvement, global interconnectedness, rapid communication, money is everything. Art has become purely commercial. It's all for the money. He says there are three issues he sees, or three concerns to religion that he sees. First, technology. He says technology reduces the sense that we depend upon God. He even quotes a a liberal Christian Schleiermacher from 100 years ago. He says, technology makes us think we're masters. Technology ruins our dependence. Second, he says, this is the great issue that he sees, uh, we are indifferent. He says, far and away, most who depart the faith of of their family do so because they are indifferent. Most of those who depart the faith of their youth do without religion right down to their death. In other words, there's an indifference to it. I think he could be describing the South today. People are indifferent. Some of the people are really anti-Christian. But mostly they're just like, okay, you do you. That's great. And then third, he says there's a fast pace, a hectic pace. The modern world is fast. And of course, for him, that meant, you know, the Model T. For us, that means, you know, the, uh, the Porsche on the Autobahn going, you know, 100, 200 miles per hour, whatever it is. Now, why would, what caused all this? He, he looked at two big issues, two big things that, that, that caused uh, this kind of modern world technology and difference in hectic pace. First thing, he said, uh, two lords stood out. He said, the first lord that threatens the kingship of Christ is mammon. We don't use the word mammon these days too much. Makes us think of the golden calf, it should. But mammon, he says, that means an absorption. You're so obsessed with getting stuff and spending stuff. Getting and spending in the material, horizontal, earthly world. You're obsessed with getting earthly things. You're focused on bigger and bigger barns. Um, Again, he could be writing today. Second, this is interesting. Second force he saw was art. Not any art. Not any art. 
Um, but actually, he attacked commercialized kitsch. Kitschy art. You know what kitsch is? I hope I don't offend anybody when I, when I say this. It's Lifeway art. It's Norman Rockwell art. Look, I, there's some things in Norman Rockwell I, I like. But it's always the same. It's always the same. It's always mass produced. They have a dozen of them in every store you go into. It's kitschy art. You destroy the artist, he argued, when the market, when the, when the, uh, when the businesses take over art. He would argue that's a sphere, the sphere of business has invaded and attacked the sphere of art. And it shouldn't be that way. You've got to protect the local art. You've got to protect the local artists. You've got to protect uh, the work of art. Um, and he would say that this has dulled our senses to the beautiful, the beauty of Christ. It's dulled us to the beauty of Christ. So what's his, what's his prescription? This is where, you know, I, I think, I'm not sure if this is the best prescription, but I'll give you, give you two things before, before we head out here. Um, first thing he says. <clears throat> What's the way forward for the king, you know? How do we deal with a modern world like this? I guess he said three things. I'll, I'll put the, the, the least important first. He looked at Islam. Kuiper was actually, if, when he writes about Islam, he's jealous of it. He sees in Islam what Christianity could have been, what Calvinism should do. He sees in Islam, I'm not sure I agree with this uh, proposal, but he sees in Islam a culture, a religion that has forced its way into different cultures, a religion that has shaped the art of different cultures, a religion focused on God, Allah, above all. And for him, when Kuiper looks at this, he says, oh, that should be what the Calvinist does. We should be focused on God's glory in all of life. He saw how Islam redefined art and architecture. And he said, look, people mock Calvinists because we break the statues. The Muslims broke more. And look at their architecture. If you ever go, if you ever look at pictures of the Alhambra in Spain, it's beautiful. Kuiper saw it. He loved it. He was obsessed by the Hagia Sophia and by the, the picture of, of thousands of Muslims uh, praying. Now, you know, I think there's maybe some Victorian issues he has with this, but um, he says we need the Muslims on our side as Christians. As Europeans, we need Muslims on our side against the Asians. That, that was his view. It's very, again, very maybe ethnic-focused uh, issues in his day, but uh, <clears throat> that was his, his view of, uh, of Islam. Second thing, and that, that's not really the main, the main thrust of the argument in pro-reggae, but the second thing he argues is that um, we are not just to be Christians who view Christ as Savior, but we need to view Christ as Lord over all of our lives. Therefore, when you're a soldier of the Lord, when you're a witness of the Lord, you need to see Him as Lord over every activity you do. When you work in the office, He's Lord. He's not just your God on Sunday. He doesn't just save your soul. He He's Lord of the body, too. He's Lord of the body. And that's where his rule third, third focus is. Um, his practical focus is that as Calvinists, as Christians, we are to uh, work, uh, we're to find allies in voluntary organizations. Kuiper had been the guy who's all about 
create the reformed version of this, create the reformed press, create the reformed school, create the reformed business. But now he moves. He says, no, 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 no. What we need to do is to come together, cooperate with Christians, cooperate with non-Calvinists. And here's what he says. He says, this should make Christianity more attractive as we come together with other Christians in, in institutions, that we come together in uh, joining with those who believe in God, what will that do to us? What will that do to the world? People will see how much superior Christianity is. So his goal basically was uh, focus on common grace. In pro reggae, he de-emphasizes evangelism. He emphasizes common grace. He emphasizes the fact that as Christians, we should work together for what we might call human flourishing and for the common good. And as we do that in education and art and business and the world, uh, that will show to others our goodness, our care for those who are weak. Kuiper was super focused. This is why he's a fan of the unions. He's super focused on caring for every human made in God's image. He believed that Christ cared for the poor in a particular way. I don't have time to go into all this because we, we do need to finish up, but I will give you one last little anecdote here. He goes to the war, the First World War. He's anti-British because the British attacked the Dutch in South Africa 20 years before. He didn't like that. Uh, and by 1819, the war's over. He's dying. He's got bronchitis. He can stand up, he has, but it's hard. And uh, on his deathbed, his daughter, Eidenberg, asked him this. Shall I tell our people that God is, our refu- is your refuge and your strength? It's what we're going to look at today in one sense. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength. She asked him, shall I tell our people that God is your refuge and your strength? Kuiper answered in a whisper. He barely had a voice, but he says emphatically, slowly, in all respects. Is God your refuge? Is God your strength? Yes, in all, in all respects. It's a glorious, it's a glorious uh, end uh, to the life of a man who was creative, who was far-sighted, um, who, who applied freedom of conscience to public life, who encouraged people of, of all religious outlooks and of no religious outlooks not to leave your convictions at home, but to bring your convictions, whether you hate Jesus or love Jesus, bring them into the public square. Bring them into government. Bring them into industry. And we'll see who wins. We'll see who, who's best. He had, a, he had a very high belief in the, uh, the, the positivity of Christ as superior to all other aspects. Um, I could go on, um, but I, I would just say that uh, that's, that's Abraham Kuyper. Uh, maybe we have time for a baby question. No, I mean, I think towards later life, in, in terms of uh, policy, he would reach across the aisle. In terms of theology, no. Yeah.
Well, I think he, he, he would argue against maybe that kind of idea in, the, in Germany that he saw in his day, you know, kind of uh, statism or, or kind of totalitarianism. Um, and part of his solution is that, you know, um, there should be magistrates involved. And I don't have time to get into what his thoughts would be on revolution, but he, he, obviously he would think that there are certain times where there, there could be uh, those things. That's a more hot topic than I want to get into right now. Uh, Jim, why don't you close us in prayer? Thank you all.